Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, I chat with iconic Minnesota comedian Louis Anderson about his career and his role on a new hit show. Mike Grimm has an update on the U of M sports facility, and Tasha Radel talks with a local health official about what's being done to help women who suffer from postpartum depression. But first, the Minnesota Coalition for Battered Women this week came out with its 2015 femicide report, and I spoke with the group's Sophia Khan about what was unfortunately a deadly year in the state. We have 34 people documented in our 2015 femicide report, of which 22 are adult women who were killed by a current or former intimate partner. Uh, We also have four children who were killed alongside their mothers um, in acts of domestic violence. Uh, Other than that, 60% of the women who have been murdered in domestic violence homicides in Minnesota in 2015 are women of color are Native women. Any deaths due to domestic violence are too many, but where where do we stand in relation to other years past as far as 2015? We have um, an average of between 20 to 40 any given year, and it fluctuates. So last year we had 23. This year we have uh, 34, uh, you know, so every year is a little different, uh, but we stay within between 20 and 40. It's also important to note that our criteria has changed over the years um, about which deaths we uh, document in our reports. So it's a little bit complicated and like comparing apples to oranges. We also have access to a lot more information and data now through social media, on public search results through the courthouse. Uh, so that has really changed our ability to be able to get information on these homicides, to be able to identify them and figure out whether or not they were domestics. We also always say that it's at least that many number of people killed. So it's at least 34 people that we know who have been killed due to domestic violence because we're not sure we have uh, not missed uh, certain deaths. Uh, there's nobody else in the state that collects this data. There's no indicator around this, these deaths uh, per se. Uh, so uh, we use public sources, mostly the media, to identify these cases and then follow up with local you know, law enforcement or prosecutor's offices and look at the court data. At the time uh, we published this report, we had uh, four additional cases that um, you know, weren't resolved at the time and we weren't able to include them in the report. And Sophia, can you just elaborate a little bit on the fact that such a, a large percentage of these people have been killed by current or former partners? And that's something that I think uh, is demonstrated each year when this report comes out. Just just talk about that a little bit, if you could. Yes. Yeah, so we really see that um, um, as a startling factor. In, I mean, all domestic violence homicides. But when you look at the adult women who are killed by current or former intimate partners, and you look at Minnesota's uh, general homicide rate for women who are murdered in homicides, uh, we find that in the last five years, over 80% of women who are killed in Minnesota in a homicide have been killed by a current or former intimate partner. And to us, that's just a staggering statistic. Uh, included in our report are also, as I mentioned earlier, children who are killed alongside their mothers. Uh, we also have men who are killed by uh, intimate partners, current or former. And we also have a category of interveners, bystanders, family members, and friends. 
Uh, and every year we have um, a whole number of people listed in, in, in that category. These include, um, you know, current boyfriends who are killed by former boyfriends. These include officers like uh, Steven Sandberg, who was killed in St. Cloud this year uh, while responding to a domestic violence incident, uh, monitoring an offender who was um, being charged with a domestic violence um, act. So we include uh, all of their deaths as well. When we do the analysis in our report, we limit that to the adult women who are murdered. And we do that for a number of reasons. Uh, first one being that that is our area of expertise. Um, and also, we have a lot of research available that we compare um, our data to uh, on women who are killed uh, by their current or former intimate partners. Sophia, if you could, for any of our listeners out there who are either suffering from domestic abuse or suspected, what can they do as far as reaching out to your organization or getting help? Absolutely. They can reach out to the Dave and Minnesota hotline number. Uh, it's 866-222-1111. Um, and uh, that will connect them to their local advocacy program. Uh, they can also go to our website, mcbw.org, uh, and uh, look up uh, local programs by their counties and reach out to their programs for confidential voluntary services. Uh, you know, even if they feel that they just need someone to listen to, they can absolutely reach out to an advocate. It's absolutely confidential. It's voluntary. It's free. Um, and they have the expertise and the training and the resources to be able to assist anyone who is experiencing domestic violence. All right. I always appreciate the opportunity to chat with you, and I uh, thank you for taking the time today. Thank you so very much. More Minnesota Matters after this. So you see, son, good manners are very, very important. Someday, many years from now, when you're a grown-up, you'll be a man. And when you are, you should be a gentleman. Do you want me to go through it one more time? Yes. Yes, please. Yes, please. Exactly. Always say please, thank you, you're welcome, and excuse me. Sit up straight, hold doors open for ladies. If a door's shut, then knock first. Don't burp, don't swear, don't speak with a mouthful, don't reach across people's plates, keep your elbows off the table. What table? And don't interrupt. While we're at it, don't stare, don't use foul language, don't call people names, but do remember people's names. Always share your toys, play nice, and cover your mouth when you cough or sneeze. On the bus, give up your seat to anyone who has trouble standing. Bottom line, treat others the way you'd like to be treated. Got it? Got it. And stop picking your nose. Most parenting is hard to do in just two minutes. But spending just two minutes twice a day making sure they brush their teeth is easier and could help save them from a lifetime of tooth pain. For fun two-minute videos to watch while brushing, visit 2min2x.org. That's 2min2x.org. A message from the Partnership for Healthy Miles, Healthy Lives, and the Ag Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. A federal panel recently made a recommendation that women be screened for depression during pregnancy and after giving birth. MNN's Tasha Radel got some local reaction from Minnesota health officials. Thanks, Scott. This is the first time screening recommendations have been made for maternal mental illness. I caught up with Dr. Helen Kim, director of the Mother Baby Program at HCMC, and asked her about her feelings behind the proposed screening. I, I think it's actually a long time in coming, and there's been a lot of uh, groundwork done on identifying depression during and after pregnancy for a long time by, by different groups in psychiatry, OB, family medicine, and even in pediatrics. So this really just summarizes, I think, a lot of that groundwork, which shows that um, while the public may focus on postpartum depression, actually half of women develop symptoms in pregnancy. And so if we focus 
our screening efforts on the postpartum time, meaning after the baby's born, then we miss the opportunity to intervene during pregnancy as depression is evolving. So I think the idea of screening during pregnancy uh, is actually ideal and hasn't really been um, put out there as a formal recommendation. So I think this is a really good thing and hopefully will prevent women from having worsening symptoms once the baby comes. And, you know, I was going to ask, and you kind of touched base on this a little bit, um, it sounds like postpartum depression is quite common, doctor. Is that is that correct? So postpartum depression is incredibly common. It's uh, one out of eight women in the general population in uh, groups that have other risk factors, for instance, teen moms or low-income or minority mothers, the rates of depression might be as high as one out of three. So the the, the incidence of um, postpartum depression is very common. Again, half of those women have symptoms in pregnancy. And so if screening ha- has had happened in their pregnancies, um, many women would have potentially received appropriate support at that time and prevented a postpartum worsening. Um, The other um, important point to make, I think, when we talk about postpartum depression is that uh, anxiety is a frequent and sometimes more common um, presenting symptom for women who have postpartum symptoms or or prenatal symptoms, uh, that sometimes it's not low mood or lack of mood or flatness and depression that uh, women uh, become distressed by it. It's more more a sense of anxiety, ruminating, um, unreassurable and overwhelming uh, emotional distress and anxiety, that that's what drives the low mood. So it's actually the new, the new terminology is perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. So perinatal refers to during pregnancy and postpartum, and mood and anxiety refers to the fact that some women present with mood symptoms like depression or irritability um, or anxiety symptoms like rumination, uh, generalized worry, panic attacks, obsessive thoughts. Well, those are all the questions that I had, Doctor. Any Anything else you wanted to add? or I, I think another important um, point that adds to the urgency of screening for Uh, perinatal mood and anxiety conditions is the impact on families, particularly the impact on uh, very young children. So when when, um, new mothers are struggling with emotional distress, their their parenting is compromised, and they uh, struggle with being the consistent caregiver that young babies need. And we know from brain research that developing the developing brains of um, babies and in that early window of zero to three years old, um, a lot is happening uh, in their development that relies on consistent caregiving. So I think the urgency of doing something for mom is to help her uh, help restore her ability to be that constant, consistent, nurturing caregiver for her child. Um, so I think often, conversations about perinatal, uh, postpartum depression or perinatal mood and anxiety tend to focus on the, the risks of medication. And I think what often gets lost is the risks of no medication and the impact on particularly very young children. Joining me now is Katie Cosimano, Associate Professor of Public Health at the University of Minnesota. Professor, for years there has been a stigma surrounding mental illness and depression. Do you feel this prevented some mothers and mothers-to-be from seeking help? You make a great point. It is actually hard to talk about this and it's hard to recognize for two main reasons. One is, as you mentioned, stigma. 
mental illness is something that for a long time has been um, a stigmatized illness. People have difficulty talking about it. It's particularly stigmatized around the time of, of motherhood and pregnancy. It's a time in people's lives when um, many, many people are feeling and experiencing great joy, um, growing their family, but not everyone feels that way. And there's kind of a, a social desirability around um, experiencing joy and happiness at this time in people's lives. But in addition to that, Things that are uh, traditional depressive symptoms, things like fatigue, changes in mood and appetite, difficulty sleeping, irritability, um, fluctuations in weight, difficulty concentrating, these are also really common things to feel in during pregnancy and the postpartum period. They're incredibly common. And so for especially for women in the immediate postpartum period, being able to distinguish whether what you're feeling is really a um, you know, persistent sign of depression as opposed to the normal changes and fluctuations of the um, postpartum period is, is really difficult. Um, routine screening will help women to be able to work with their clinicians to identify when their, um, their level of symptoms or their adjustment rises to the level of really needing help. We're about out of time. Any last words, Professor? I think the only thing that I'd really like to add is that while this recommendation represents an important step forward for public health and for women's health, it's really, screening is really just the first step in getting, um, in both detecting and treating postpartum and uh, perinatal depression. So you can screen women, but it's really important that there are also treatment systems in place so that once women are screened and if they screen positive, that they have access to appropriate resources to address their depressive symptoms, to really give them the kind of, of relief and recovery and remittance of symptoms that um, we know can happen and we know will help them and, and their babies and their families. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters returns after this. Who might you save? Your mother, your father, your husband, uncle, aunt, son. Learn fast. F-A-S-T. The sudden signs of a stroke and you could save. Your friend, your best friend, teacher, boss, coach. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. F-A-S-T, face, arm, speech, time. That's F, face drooping, A, arm weakness, S, speech difficulty, T, time to call 911. The sooner they get to the hospital, the sooner they'll get treatment. And that can make a remarkable difference in the recovery of your neighbor, the waiter, a fellow shopper, a total stranger, grandmother, grandfather. So learn F-A-S-T, the sudden signs of a stroke, then pass it on because you never know who might save you. Your wife, your colleague, teammate, mother. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. Unexpected reactions to smart financial decisions brought to you by feedthepig.org. Well, I finally did it. I opened a 401k. So you're giving up. Just like that. Giving up on what? I'm getting an inheritance from a distant relative. Don't you think if there were a billionaire in the family, we'd know about it by now? Listen to me. We are one phone call away from riding horses on our own private polo grounds. One call from christening yachts, having a butler, using summer as a verb. How do you figure? Look, everyone's got a rich uncle somewhere. It's statistics. So the best thing you can do is just prepare for the inevitable. 
Right, which is why I thought maybe it would be smart to take control of my finances. You know, start using a budget, get out of debt, set some retirement goals. Budgets? Debt? You watch your mouth. Retirement shouldn't be a goal for us. It should be a way of life. When it comes to financial stability, don't get left behind. Get tools and tips for saving at feedthepig.org. This message brought to you by the American Institute of CPAs and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. Minnesota's own Louis Anderson has been a comedy icon for more than 30 years. Now he's starring in a critically acclaimed brand new show on FX. It's called Baskets. I recently had a chance to chat with Louis about his career and his unique role in the new show. You're playing an interesting character in the new FX series Baskets. Tell me about how you came to play Zach Galifianakis' mother, Christine, in the show. Well, I got a call from Louis C.K. He called my agent and uh, asked for my phone number. I said, yeah, give it to him. And he called me and said, Louis, I'm doing a show with Zach, and we want you to play a part. I said, yeah. He said, we want you to play Zach's mom. (laughs) And I go, yeah, I'll do it. Really? It was that easy for uh, you? Yeah, because, you know, I've been doing my mom character, my act, for 37 years. You know, and I have five sisters and my mom, and I said, what the hell? <laughs> Why not? Well, I was going to ask, you know, you as you just said, your family's been a part of your act for quite some time. How much of your mother is in your portrayal of Christine? I, I would say a large amount. She's a little meaner than my mom was. Um, but, yeah, a large part of her is definitely derived. Oftentimes in the show, I would say to Jonathan Kreisel from Portlandia, who is our director, he's the guy who did Portlandia, he would, I would say to him, hey, do you mind if I do this? Mind if I try this like my mom would say it? And he'd go, yeah, go ahead. And I did, and um, man, that was, uh, that was a home run. A lot of times, and it was my mom's, you know, voice in my head and her words and her gestures and her looks. And so I think we're all, you know, I think we all have a pedigree that runs from our parents, you know, kind of like where we get our looks, where we get our opinions, where we get all that stuff. I think it runs very deep in us. You know, here in Minnesota, we're we're proud of you. We sort of think of you as our own. And are you still connected to Minnesota in, in some way? Do you still have those oh, connections? Oh, man, yeah. I would move back if you would dome it. <laughs> <laughs> I would, uh, you know, the older I get, the more I want to live in Minnesota with all my family and friends and all my familiar places and, and the nice the niceness of Minnesota. You know, there's something really good and helpful. And, you know, Minnesota's the type of place where if somebody's in a ditch, you don't think as much as you, maybe you would if you're somewhere else to pull over and and try to help them get out of it. Everybody, you know, there's a good, there's a big all-for-one, one-for-all attitude in Minnesota. And, you know, I also learned about being generous and being charitable on the receiving end as a poor child. And uh, that transferred over to my adulthood to be giving and to be charitable. So I think Minnesota, you know, it uh, it's a, as much of that character, you know, as uh, as I am. 
As someone who's been on the comedy scene for quite some time, are you looked at as an elder statesman by some of the comedians you're working with on the show, Zach Galifianakis and Louis C.K.? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, I think people, I think, you know, people use those words, uh, elder statesman, and, and I just think I'm a comic, you know, like, I'm still uh, alive and well in my comedy. It still means a great deal to me. It still uh, motivates me. It still drives me. I mean, I want to do a new special. I've been working really hard on the material, and I want to take it, you know, I'm not satisfied with what I've done, but I'm really excited about what I could do. I've been watching Tonight's Show with Johnny Carson reruns lately and just kind of rediscovering how great he is. And I'm hoping you can share with me a little bit about what your experiences were like the first, maybe the first time you were on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Well, you know, it was a surreal experience from, for the kid from Minnesota who sat on the arm of the couch and watched The Tonight Show with my dad. He'd let me stay up and watch the comedians, and he loved Doc Severinsen, and so I would sit there and watch it. And so when I was backstage at The Tonight Show, and that spotlight hit that curtain that I used to watch through a black-and-white TV. Uh, it was like an out-of-body experience for me. I really... I don't have any conscious memory of doing the set, but uh, when I watch it, I remember how I was transported almost above myself to look at and watch what was going on because it was so important to me. And what was Johnny Carson like when uh, they went to commercial and maybe you had a chance to chat with him off camera a little bit? What was he like? You know, he wasn't, uh, he didn't, he saved it all for when it was on camera for the most part. He would ask how you are, how are things going? I hope it's going well. But he would listen to the band and he did not do small talk. But he was very nice to me and uh, I wish I would have realized how much he liked me. You know, he really was a sweet, sweet man. I saw that early in your career you wrote for Henny Youngman. What was that like? Well, you know, that way he was all business. You know, I mean, no, but you know, he was friendly. Don't get me wrong. But he was all about the next joke. What's the next joke? What, what are you working on? What do you got for me? What's the, you know, so, so that experience was, uh, was kind of a weird, crazy experience. Uh, I became friends with his grandson, uh, Larry Kelly, who, God rest his soul, was one of my favorite people. And um, Henny just was so much fun to be around, and he'd always yell at you, you're driving too fast. You're going too fast. You're going too fast. But he was, uh, he, you know, he was an uh, he was, he was icon, a legend, and him and Milton Berle, I got to see them perform together, and it was quite an amazing thing. I speak for a lot of us here in Minnesota when I, I say your success, it couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Thanks. Thank yep. you so much. I really appreciate it. More Minnesota Matters after this. Son, uh, can you hand me that big screwdriver? This one, Dad? Uh, no, that's a wrench. Uh, I need the long one close to your foot. Why? Uh, because I need to loosen a screw. Why? Because I have to change the oil filter. Why? Because I love you! <laughs> 
<laughs> the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. All right. Now pass me the new filter. Why? Ha <laughs> <laughs> very funny. <laughs> Take time to be a dad today. For more information, dial 1-877-432-3411 or visit us at www.fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. There's been a lot of talk about the new $150 million athletic facility set to be built on the University of Minnesota campus. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm, who also serves as the radio voice of the Gophers, is with us with an update on the overall plan. Scott, there's a slight bit of work already underway on the project, but the heavy lifting portion begins in less than three weeks. Beth Getz is the Interim Athletic Director for the University of Minnesota. You know, over the past few months, and I think we're going to continue to see more of this uh, here shortly, but they have been doing some, uh, taking some soil samples. Um, so with that is, you know, some testing they do, some uh, looking for utilities, those types of things. But um, we're really excited they're going to uh, come and fence off the site on February 15th, um, and then we are scheduled to have about 100 trucks in and out each day, moving bad soil out, good soil in uh, at the beginning of March. March. Uh, so we'll really, you know, it's really going to start to take shape here soon. As the uh, as the spring then rolls in, is it just going to be dump truck after dump truck uh, coming in and out of here? Well, that's certainly what it seems like. So I know they'll, uh, you know, at some point, obviously, we'll start to see the footings go in and, and those types of things. So, um, you know, visible progress is, is something to be excited about and certainly brings enthusiasm to the project. Let's um, recap just quickly the uh, the, the timeline uh, from when February 15th to like when student athletes are going to start being able to, to use this facility, which could be months, years down the road now. Well, you know, the plan and the, the thought is at this point in time that we hope to have all buildings uh, open by January of 2018 to our student athletes. Um, so that's uh, that's that's sort of the, the timeline and the goal for the project. And so we'll see various phases and continued progress, um, you know, really from the 15th until that point. Uh, fundraising. Uh, you've you've uh, accomplished a lot. Obviously, more still has to happen. Going to give us an update on that front. Yeah, well, you know, we uh, we're at about 80 million, and to do that in 24 months is is really no small feat, um, and so we're really excited about that success. Uh, but we, you know, we don't want to sit on that. We still have a ways to go. Um, really enthused about the conversations, uh, uh, cultivation conversations we tend to have uh, with uh, with our prospects, and uh, believe that number is going to continue to grow, and uh, believe we'll be able to to complete that um, 166 million dollar goal. There are certainly donors who want to be on the front end of it, like I want to be one of the first to donate. And then I would guess there's others who want to wait to see, okay, now the shovel's in the ground, now we're seeing some footings, now we see some models, and now I'm going to get involved. Do you, is there a hope there that there's a few of those still lingering out there that now want to jump in? Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. So it's some of it's about timing and, and wanting to see, hey, they, they really are moving forward with this progress and, and we want to get on board. And, um, and, you know, and there's the other side of it that, you know, timing's a lot of, of you know, jumping into a relationship with, uh, with, with somebody of this magnitude. So um, some of it's timing for, you know, whether it's a, a local business community or a generous individual donor. So we'll see some of that coming to fruition here, I think, in the, in the next couple months. 
with the project, uh, for those maybe that haven't seen it, kind of take us through, I mean, there's all kinds of different things. Uh, kind of run us through the whole uh, gamut, if you would. Yeah, and that's why Athletes Village is, uh, you know, such a, a fitting name uh, for the project, but it's really, it will meet all the needs of our student athletes from training, academics, um, and uh, personal and professional development. So um, there's a couple different facilities. One, the Land Lakes uh, Leadership uh, and Excellence Center um, is going to be a building that incorporates our nutrition center um, sort of on the bottom floor. Um, we'll have a couple floors dedicated specifically to academics, um, and that's an area where we've got great services but a tremendous amount of overcrowding. Um, so those will be uh, great facilities for that group to move into, um, and then a couple floors dedicated to leadership. Um, and that's obviously about preparing them for the next 40 years, um, so connecting them to career opportunities, um, helping to develop their professional skills um, from a leadership perspective, resume writing, all of those uh, different types of things, and doing mock interviews and actually bringing corporations in to do real interviews for internships and full-time employment um, upon graduation. Um, and then in addition to the those things, which will really service all 100, uh, 725 of our student-athletes, um, we also have some uh, facilities specifically dedicated to basketball and football. So basketball will have um, practice facilities um, and also a performance area uh, where they will do their strength and conditioning training, and football um, will have the same. So we'll have a performance area and an indoor practice facility um, that they'll be able to utilize. So long-awaited and much-needed facilities that will really help us to improve their experience. For those that are familiar with campus, they've been here for basketball or football or a baseball or softball game, kind of take us through, if you can, the best you can on the radio, kind of the footprint of where much of this will, will sit and, uh, you know, how, how people, when they come to campus, what will look different now. Yeah, well, it'll be on the Beerman footprint. Um, and one of the exciting pieces is that if you've seen the Beerman complex and it's, it provides great services, but it doesn't have much of a presence on 15th Street. So um, that's one of the things that you're really going to notice is that as you come from 15th Street, you're going to know you've arrived at an athletic complex. Last question for you. If there are folks listening uh, that maybe haven't gotten involved or want to see the, the, the renderings, uh, maybe they want to write a check. Uh, what, what, what's the easiest place to, to get a lot of that info? Well, we have a great uh, website if they want to first check it out online, and it's nothing short of greatness.com, and they can really see what we're doing and why we are doing it. Um, but we're happy to, to, to meet and talk with anybody and, and would love to, to see how our passions collide and if there's a way we can work together to, to make this happen. That's Interim Athletic Director Beth Getz, who, as you can tell, is excited about the plan facilities upgrade. Scott? Thank you, Mike. That's going to do it for this week. Tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.